This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I never was sent to any school. I was always sick. Female education in the best of families went no farther than writing and arithmetic. My station is always at the right hand of Mrs. W. I find it sometimes occupied. But on such an occasion, the president never fails of seeing that it is relinquished for me. And having removed ladies several times, they have now learnt to rise and give it to me. But this is between ourselves, as all distinction, you know, is unpopular. I have no disposition to seclude myself from society, because I have met with unkind or ungrateful returns from some. I would strive to act my part well and retire with dignity, which is unconscious of doing or wishing ill to any. The friendship with which you honored me has ever been valued and fully reciprocated. Neither my estimate of your character nor the esteem founded in that have ever been lessened for a single moment. Born in 1744 and passing away in 1818, Abigail Smith Adams would have a life near unparalleled for a woman of her time, meeting some of the figures that still loom large in history and traveling to various parts of the globe while also working to raise a family and managing the household finances while her husband's political career took him away from home for great lengths of time. Her sheer force of will is one of the key reasons cited by people in the present day for their interest in her. And yet, it seems that she did not command the interest of her contemporaries that other figures such as Martha Washington and Dolly Madison did. We'll learn more about this remarkable woman in this special episode. But before we do, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Shelley. Faye, Karen, and Alex for providing the intro quotes to this episode. The aim of this podcast is to bring to light the multitude of voices that have contributed to what we define as presidential history. And I'm always so thankful for all of the wonderful people in my life who help either by lending their voices or their support in this endeavor. I have to admit that I had a more difficult time finding intro quotes for this episode than usual. When I started working on this episode, I thought that surely there would be a multitude of contemporary quotes about Abigail Adams. But I quickly realized that, unless I've completely overlooked them, it's hard to find many descriptions of her. Thankfully, she made her own voice known through her letters and writings, so most of the quotes from the intro come from Abigail herself. During my conversation with our special guest, I came to realize that this understated role in her time may in fact have been Abigail's own doing, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Just to give you a quick rundown of how this episode is going to go. The first segment is going to discuss Abigail's early life up to a point during the American Revolution. Then we'll be joined by our special guest for a discussion of Abigail and her role as First Lady. After which, the episode will wrap up with an overview of Abigail's life after March 1801. Abigail was born in Weymouth, Massachusetts as the second child of William and Elizabeth Smith on November 22, 1744. 
As noted by Abigail's biographer, Lynn Withy, quote, Both William and Elizabeth enjoyed a certain inherited status and enough independent income to ensure them a comfortable, if not extravagant, standard of living. A graduate of Harvard, William had become a minister after his graduation and served as such in Weymouth for 49 years, a remarkable tenure as noted by Withy in, quote, a time when penny-pinching town fathers tried to keep taxes down by driving hard bargains over their minister's compensation. However, it was not just his willingness to accept a smaller salary that kept him in his position. Quote, his genial personality, moderate theology, and attentiveness to his parishioners also went a long way toward making him popular with his congregation. Elizabeth, meanwhile, is described as, quote, an attractive young woman, accomplished in the domestic arts and pious, as befitted a minister's wife. In manner, she was inclined to the austere, but she was kind and compassionate despite her outward formality. Both came from good families, And through Elizabeth, Abigail and her siblings were able to trace their lineage back to one of the signers of the Magna Carta, on through English gentry, then on to some of the first English settlers of New England. The Smith children were raised, quote, with a firm but gentle hand. And by the age of five or six, Abigail, who the family called Nabby, was expected to help out around the house with hemming, embroidering, and other household tasks. The church also played a large role in Abigail's early life as the family attended William's, quote, long prayers and sermons. As described by Withy, quote, going to church, or to meeting, as Congregationalists called it, was an all-day affair. Morning services, which could go on for two or three hours, were followed by a break for dinner and then an equally long service in the afternoon. Sermons were the principal feature of both services, and children, even very young children, were expected to pay attention without fidgeting. As the minister's daughter, Nabby had to learn this discipline well. As she got older, Abigail started to join her mother Elizabeth, quote, on her rounds to visit the sick and the poor of the parish, as well as with weaving projects that Elizabeth organized to employ women who needed a source of income. Withy notes this work as having a strong impact on Abigail and creating in her a sense, quote, that a woman of means, even very modest means, had a responsibility to look out for the poor of her neighborhood as well as care for her own family. While Abigail never had a formal education, she learned reading first from her mother. Then, as she and her siblings grew older, their father took over the responsibility of guiding their education. Again, from Withy, Quote, William Smith may have been less intellectually minded than some of his fellow ministers, but he loved books and had an excellent library. He managed to convey his enthusiasm for reading to his daughters and encouraged them to read whatever volumes struck their fancy. Abigail would take this freedom and run with it to become much more well-read than other contemporary women. Through her life, she would be self-conscious about her lack of a formal education and would advocate for greater education for women. In her developing years, Abigail was noted as being sick rather often. However, between books, correspondence with family and acquaintances, and visitors, Abigail would learn more about the world outside of Weymouth. One of the most influential visitors was Richard Cranch, who came to the Smith household to court Abigail's sister Mary. Abigail would later credit him with being the first person to, quote, put proper books into my hands, who taught me to love the poets and to distinguish their merits. 
If that name sounds familiar, it should, as we first met Richard Cranch in episode 2.1. He was friends with an up-and-coming lawyer named John Adams, who would come around with him to the Smith household at times. As noted in the earlier episode, it was not love at first sight for either of them. As described by Withy, quote, Abigail was shy with John at first, intimidated by his manner, but as she got to know him better, she found something strangely attractive about his bold and forthright behavior. She and John discovered that they were much alike, and before long, they had fallen in love. Again, as we discussed in the prior episode, the courtship would be a lengthy one, as John was still trying to get to a point where he could financially support a family. Lore is that Abigail's parents initially did not approve of the match, thinking their daughter could do better than to marry a lawyer. As we all know, they were married and settled into their home in Braintree, and their family started to grow. For the first year, Abigail was able to visit often with her sister Mary and her husband Richard Cranch as they lived on the other side of Braintree. But the Cranches in time moved on to Salem and the sisters took up a correspondence that, as we've already seen, provides a wealth of information on the Adams' lives, both political and personal. An example of this peek behind the scenes in the Adams household can be found in a letter from Abigail to Mary on January 12, 1767, in which she tells her sister that, quote, My good man would send his love to you all, only he sets by reading newspaper politics and is so taken up with them that he cannot think of better matters. Not willing to let Abigail have the last word, John added a postscript to the letter, assuring Mary that, quote, I will send my love. What care I for newspaper politics? What would I give to have Brother Cranch's long visage alongside of my short one, with a pipe in each, talking about this and that and the other? One can picture the back and forth between the two at home as Abigail was writing her letter and, in a combination of jest and critique, commenting on his quote-unquote neglect of her in favor of the paper. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, as we've discussed in the pre-presidency episodes, the domestic bliss was not to last, as John would spend a good deal of time away from home, building up his legal practice and making connections in Boston. John would be away for the birth of their first child, Nabby, in 1765, and Abigail depended at that time on her mother, mother-in-law, and sisters, as she remained in bed for around three weeks after Nabby's birth, as was customary to regain her strength. At this point, Withy notes that, quote, So far, married life had lost none of its magical qualities for Abigail, and she quickly adjusted to her new responsibilities as a young mother. John would have times where he would spend more time at home, and in August 1766, they would leave Nabby with relatives and go to stay with the Cranches in Salem, returning again later in the year for another visit. It was during this visit that both had their portraits done by a local artist named Benjamin Blythe, Portraits which give us our first look at the young Adamses. 1767 would see the birth of John Quincy as well as John going back on the legal circuit more and more. Again from Withy, quote, The sole responsibility for home and children fell on her, i.e. Abigail's shoulders. 
John did share her concern about raising the children properly, but he worried most about working harder and making more money to support them. The children's physical and moral well-being he left to Abigail. She had no difficulties with the practical matters of child-rearing and managed on her own pivotal developmental milestones including weaning, potty training, and the beginning of their education. In 1768, the family moved to Boston, which would bring Abigail closer to her sister Mary once more as the Cranches had also moved to the city. Withy gives us a sense of what the adjustment to their new circumstances was like when she writes, quote, The noise was the hardest thing to get used to in Boston. Carts clatter by the Adams' front door constantly, at all hours of the day and night. The streets were filled with people, horses, and stray livestock. Even Bostonians kept chickens and pigs. For a long time, Abigail couldn't sleep at night, but eventually she got acclimated. Sometimes she missed the solitude and clean, fresh air of Braintree, but most of the time, she enjoyed the change of pace. She would take the opportunity while in Boston to attend court sessions and would become acquainted with John's associates and their families. Three years after their move to the city, though, the Adamses would return back to their home in Braintree, and John would go back on the legal circuit, leaving Abigail to mind the children and household affairs once more. Before long, they would find their way back to Boston, and it was during this time that Abigail would meet a person who would, quote, become Abigail's closest confidant during the Revolutionary years, and that she would, according to Withy, quote, regard as a model for her own life, Mercy Otis Warren. Warren was 16 years older than Abigail and was an accomplished published playwright. Again, from Withy, quote, Abigail did not herself aspire to anything more than being a good wife and mother, but she felt a special appreciation for women who did. Around the same time, Abigail became interested in English political writer Catherine Macaulay, and after John began corresponding with her, Abigail likewise began a correspondence with Macaulay, sharing, quote, her vision of American problems. Abigail wrote to Macaulay that, quote, We are invaded with fleets and armies. Our commerce not only obstructed, but totally ruined. The courts of justice shut. Many driven out from the metropolis. Thousands ruined to want are dependent upon the charity of their neighbors for a daily supply of food. All the horrors of a civil war threatening us on one hand and the chains of slavery ready forged for us on the other. Year after year, all of the members of the Adams family were being drawn into the course of events that would culminate into the American Revolution. As John was chosen as a delegate to the Continental Congress in June 1774, they decided that Abigail and the children should return to the family farm at Braintree. With a notes of this period of her life that, quote, Abigail had to contend with problems on the farm, manage the children by herself, and keep John informed of the latest local political developments. It was almost as if they were rehearsing for the much longer separation that lay ahead of them. While John was in Philadelphia, the two would write to one another, though John wrote less frequently, citing his work with Congress as taking up a good portion of his time, which, as we noted in the pre-presidency episode, with all the committees he was in and sessions he was participating in, it's a wonder he had time to write at all. In Abigail's letters, quote, she poured out her worries about everything from planting corn to the possibility of war with Great Britain. At the time, the 300 miles between Braintree and Philadelphia, quote, could easily take two weeks to cover. Intercolonial postal service was poor at best, and extremely expensive besides. 
Worried with some justification that his letters might be intercepted, John preferred to send them by personal messenger. We'll talk more about the correspondence with our special guest in the next segment, but for now, just know that this exchange was key for both of them. When she wasn't writing letters and dealing with household affairs, Abigail would occasionally go to dinner at her uncle Josiah Quincy's home, where her cousins Josiah Jr. and Samuel would debate the Patriot versus Loyalist positions respectively. The tensions in the colony kept building until finally exploding into violence at first Lexington and Concord. Then, in the early morning of June 17, 1775, Abigail awoke to cannon fire coming from Breed's Hill on the north side of Boston. Abigail got John Quincy up, and the two climbed to the top of nearby Penn's Hill, the highest point in Braintree, to watch what would come to be known as the Battle of Bunker Hill. She wrote to John that, quote, The constant roar of the cannon is so distressing that we cannot eat, drink, or sleep, and pronounced this, quote, the day, perhaps the decisive day, on which the fate of America depends. She felt that she and her children were bearing witness to one of those key moments in history, and there are some that would argue that she was. After the battle, rumors continued to circulate about British attacks, and Abigail continued to watch over her family and manage the farm. She also worked with her neighbors to help refugees fleeing from the British occupation of Boston. While doing all of this, Abigail also gathered information, both for her own curiosity and to send back to John. She made her way to the army camp in Cambridge in July, where she met the newly named general, George Washington, of whom she wrote to her husband that, quote, You had prepared me to entertain a favorable opinion of him, but I thought the one half was not told me. Dignity with ease and complacency, the gentleman and soldier looked agreeably blended in him. As was noted in the pre-presidency episode, Abigail would also face illness and the death of her mother and the family's servant during this period. But finally, March 1776 would bring a moment of triumph as Abigail ascended Penn's Hill once more to watch the British ships set sail and leave Boston Harbor. I think this marks a good point to end this recounting of backstory and move on to my discussion with Feather Schwartz Foster about Abigail. At the end of that segment, we'll take a look at Abigail's life after John left the presidency and conclude with some thoughts on her legacy. Just a note for those who have not listened to the special episode on Martha Washington from the Washington series, the last episode that Feather joined me for, Feather is a historian and author of Presidential and First Lady's History. To date, she has published three books on the First Ladies, with her latest entitled Mary Lincoln's Flannel Pajamas and Other Stories from the First Lady's Closet. She has delivered numerous lectures in various parts of the nation and participated in radio and television interviews, including an appearance as a guest historian on C-SPAN's First Ladies series, which is highly recommended for anyone who hasn't seen it. Feather also lectures on a regular basis at the Christopher Wren Society, the adult education venue in Williamsburg, Virginia, associated with the College of William and Mary. Feather was gracious enough to return to the podcast in order to share her insight on Abigail Adams. So without further ado, let's turn to that conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Feather Schwartz Foster. Feather, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. 
I'm glad to do it. Excellent. Well, to get us started, um, first of all, like Mr. Adams, Abigail was a native to Massachusetts. Can you share with us a little bit about Abigail's family and her early life and kind of how her upbringing contributed to the adult she became? Well, Abigail um, was born and raised in Weymouth, Massachusetts, which is uh, in the general vicinity of Boston. And her father was a a clergyman, William Smith. He was a minister, well-educated, and he sometimes did a little teaching. But he was very highly respected in the family, in the in the community. He was they they were upscale. Uh, maybe not rich, but certainly upscale. Her mother, however, was a, um, she was a Quincy. That was a big deal. That was, that was very patrician. It was sort of like Thomas Jefferson. His father was a Jefferson of gentry and property, but his mother was a Randolph and boy did that count. So, uh, she got some of the background of education, but she also got a background of prominence and do your duty, not just through the religion, but from family position. Um, So uh, she was homeschooled. Um, Her father believed in educating their daughters, uh, so she learned to read and write and and spell and and do stuff. But um, interestingly enough, she was not artistic. She she didn't she didn't draw she didn't paint she didn't sing she didn't play any musical instruments, but she liked she liked the the tough subjects she liked philosophy she liked politics she liked history she liked economics all those kind of things that was really her forte she liked that and it was something that she shared with uh, John Adams so, you know once they got married um, she met him when she was about 14 years old. He was not really interested in her, although he did admit in his diary that, oh, the second daughter there has some wit. You know, she has she has wit. Uh, but she was a little too young to, for him to be interested in. He was nine years older. And he was in the market. He was in the market for uh, maybe courting someone. But um, as time went on and he would stay with the uh, Smith, when he was in the area doing legal business and, and all, uh, he got to know Abigail better, and he liked her. And by the time she got to be about 17, 18, he started courting her seriously. And I think she was about, she wasn't quite 20 when they got married. It sounds like in terms it sounds like in terms of her personality that that she was kind of atypical for the social norms of the time for uh, a woman, um, especially an interest in philosophy and politics versus more artistic endeavors. That That's true. That was artistic. However, she was raised to be, uh, for want of a better expression, a New England housewife. She was raised to, she could sew, she could knit, she could crochet, she uh, could cook some, she could do all the things that a good housewife was uh, supposed to do. She did that. I just said she wasn't artistic. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And and so how would you describe her personality? And would there have been a difference between her public persona and how she was around family and close friends? She was a New England Puritan. I don't know if you've ever been to New England or if you know any New Englanders. There is a reserve about them. It's almost like legendary, you know, with, with a Puritan New England kind of reserve. She, her persona, her public uh, versus her private, uh, that, they were always uh, holding back. They internalized a lot more. Uh, so um, she, once she married John and once they got to be really, really comfortable with each other, they could be a lot freer. But they were they, there was always a reserve uh, with Abigail in in her public life, and and women at that time, as you know, and wives were really only supposed to be a reflection of their husbands. And we talked a bit on the podcast about Abigail how Abigail had to take care of the family's business affairs. So like running the management of the uh, family farm, making arrangements for leasing out lands, making investments while John was away during his many years of public service. So what sense do you get of how Abigail felt about taking on this responsibility? And did that change over time? Of course it changed over time. She took it on at first as, oh, dear, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And she did it. The more she did, she the, the more confidence she had. The more you, you get doing it, you get the experience, and you get confidence, and you put them together, and you get better at it. And what was really good about it was that John had confidence in her. He would say, you can take care of this, and she did. And he would, oh, you did a fine job. This was good. So she got a lot of confidence with it, and she became really the business side of their marriage, which relieved John for a lot of responsibilities. And not only responsibilities, relieved him from from care. You know, he, uh, in addition to everything else he had to worry about, well, I don't have to worry about the farm or the children or their education or their this is something because Abigail can take care of it and she's good at it and I, and I have plenty of confidence in her decisions. That relieved him a lot and, and that made her uh, even better at it, you know. Absolutely. And it sounds like from things that I've read that it was probably in better hands in Abigail's hands than in John's. Probably was. A lot of presidents, by the way, um, taking care of the business side of the household. When I say the business side, I mean handling the money, balancing the book, paying the bills, those kind of things. A lot of the first ladies did that as opposed to their husbands. Uh, Edith Roosevelt did it for Theodore um, both the Wilson wives took care of the business aspect for Woodrow Wilson. A lot of that, uh, it usually fell to the one who was better at it, either the one who was better at it or the, word, or the one that hates it the least. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because because it, it, 
paying bills and stuff is not always fun, but it has no, to be done. No. <laughs> it has to be done, and sometimes the one who hates it the least does it. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and speaking of things that aren't so much fun, um, when we started discussing this episode, you had mentioned a post that you had done on your blog about Abigail's experience with inoculation. So I talked in the first episode of the series on John Adams about how John had been inoculated prior to their marriage. But would you mind sharing with everyone? Would you mind sharing with everyone some about Abigail's experience? Um. Abigail and the children, or Abigail decided that she and the children needed to be inoculated. There was a terrible epidemic in the Boston area, and it was coincidental to the time that John was in Philadelphia getting the Declaration of Independence written, approved, signed, and and getting this into effect. I mean, it was really within weeks of each other, which meant John wasn't about to, he he couldn't come back to Boston to be with them for this whole process. He knew about it. He knew what was involved with it, but uh, what was he going to do for them besides nothing? Uh, So, uh, and it was a couple of weeks, you know, just to travel back and forth. Smallpox is a virulent disease. It's very contagious. You have to be isolated in uh, in quarantine for it. And it had about a 30% mortality rate. That means 30% of the people who got it are going to die. That's That's high. That's real high. And the only good thing, I guess, if you want to call it good, is if you get through it and you have um, a light case, uh, you can't get it again. You're immune, which means you can help take care of the other people who have it without fear that you're going to get it or spread it. So uh, Abigail felt that she and the children needed to have this done. And the interesting thing was that uh, she had a relative in Boston who was willing to lend them. They had a house. The relatives had this house in Boston. And uh, they say, you can use the house for your inoculation, which was about a five-week procedure, by the way. This was not go get a shot and go home. Uh, and uh, you can go and take the house, but you have to bring your own bedding. So Abigail and the children, that's those five, and then there were another six people who were her friends and neighbors in the, in, in where she lived in Braintree, who said, oh, if you're going to do that, we'd like to go to, we'd like to be inoculated, um, can we go? And so I think there were 11 people all told, and they pulled their resources, got a wagon, Filled it not just with bedding, but all their supplies, including a cow and and hay for the cow and food and and uh, extra clothing and whatever else they needed, firewood. And they went and they used this house. And the doctor would come to their to that house to inoculate them. Abigail went first. She said she will have the inoculation first. And hopefully her case will be light, and this way she'll be able to take care of the children. 
uh, I think Nabby at the time, the oldest, was was only 11 years old. So, and the and the baby, Tom, Thomas, I think was like three, somewhere around there. So these were small children. They they, wow. they were little kids, and she decided she was going to go first. And sure enough, she did have a light case. The procedure for this was absolutely fearful. You do not undertake this lightly. It was very scary and it was very dangerous. And the first thing that they do to you is uh, you have to go through this preparation, which is about as much fun as preparing for a colonoscopy. Uh, not fun. <laughs> not at all. Not fun. Not fun. But this one was you. You have to clean yourself out, not only uh, coming and going, but uh, mostly uh, you have to vomit. You have to you uh, purge a lot for a few days to just get your whole insides emptied, uh, and then the doctor comes and they put this dead. Pox pustule uh, underneath your skin, and hopefully you will get a light case, meaning you won't be that sick. You may get a little sick. You may run a little fever. Uh, you may not feel good for a few days here or there, or but you will uh, get over it, and you won't be the worse for wear, and hopefully you won't get the pock marks. Uh, which are lasting, and they can be very disfiguring. Uh, she got a light case, and then she had the children inoculated. Uh, John Quincy did pretty well. He he had a very light case, and it wasn't too bad. Navi was pretty sick. Charles's uh, uh, inoculation didn't take the first time, and it didn't take the second time. And uh, the third time, they put a live uh, pustule in him, and he got really, really, really sick. I mean, they were really worried about him. I think he was unconscious for a couple of days. I mean, really, really bad. You do not undertake this lightly. This was a mega deal. And and she underwent it with the children and a few neighbors and and. Saw to everything, and 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 the neighbors that were going along, they really relied on Abigail and her judgment and her leadership to to get them through it because she she just had it. That's the way she was. Amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. We are in a time where you know these things, like you said, it's just go in, get a shot, and that's it. Not five weeks of your life is going to be spent. With this, wow! And, and, and most the kids of it, and neighbors. And when you got the shot, you had a case of the smallpox. It may have not been as as horrible, and the chances that you will survive the inoculation are were a lot higher, which is why you do it in the first place. But those they were sick. This is sick. You don't want to, you know. If you say, "Oh, gee, I know I'm going to be," that's it was very, very serious. It was a big deal. Well, and and I know those those earlier years, and especially um, as the kids were growing up, were rough for the Adamses because uh, John was away a lot. Abigail was having to attend to so much. Yes. 
And so he's almost um, like a single parent. Absolutely. Which, you know, in some ways for historians, it, it worked to our benefit because we've got this great correspondence between them and it gives us so much insight into their, into their relationship, into what each of them was going through at that time. But still it, it, it's hard to imagine all this going on and, and living through this. Um, yep. And so one of the, one of the periods that it seems like it was really rough on them was when um, John went to Europe. Oh yeah. You know, and, they, they, and were, so, they were separated for about five years. And, and that's so a long took, time. He took um, a couple of the sons with him to Europe. Yes. Um, but Abigail and Nabby were left behind until um, they were finally able to join John and John Quincy in 1784. They made the crossing over to Europe. So what's, what's your sense of how Abigail, how she approached these years of separation, as well as this opportunity to finally travel to Europe? Um, Abigail missed John a lot. I mean, a, a lot, a lot. When he was in Philadelphia, the correspondence was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Practically every every time the, the postman came, he was bringing letters uh, from him and taking letters from her. So the exchange was, was, was close. It was there. It was very, very regular. It was newsy. She was... The, when he was in Europe... Uh, the correspondence really, it went down to a trickle. I think they said there was practically a year where she didn't hear from him at all. Um, it was hard to get mail across the ocean. It took five weeks at best, at best. If, if he wrote a letter, ran quickly down to the, the pier, gave it to somebody and say, here, take it to my wife in Massachusetts. The, the ship may not have been going to Massachusetts. It, it, the ship may have been going to Charleston, South Carolina. Then when it gets to Charleston, South Carolina, you've got to find something. Anybody going to Massachusetts? Will you take a letter, you know? <laughs> so it, it was going to take a long time, even at best, at the optimum. It was never the optimum. I think there were some uh, ships that were sunk. There were some ships that um, didn't make it. They got lost. Uh, he was busy. He was traveling. It was just very, very difficult. And she missed not only him, she missed those letters. And she worried about him. And every time she, uh, every time there was a, a ship in, that was coming into Boston from overseas, she would make sure she would get in her wagon or her carriage or something. She'd run right down to the pier, and she would spend a day or two haunting those wharfs if she could find somebody who was on that ship. Oh, have you ever, do you know my husband? Have you seen him? Do you know anything about him? Have you heard anything? She didn't know if he was alive or dead. That's not good. You know, this is very, very troublesome and it was very um it was very difficult for her. So finally he says, I want you to come. And he had asked her before, 
but she had always been hesitant. The kids were small. They needed, you know, they still needed care. They needed tending to. But uh, finally, Tom was now of an age where he could be left with with relatives and, and, you know, to her uh, situation. Uh, And Nabby was about 18 or 19. uh, And she says, okay, we're going to go. Uh, so she goes, uh, to make the, the, uh, preparations and what she's really afraid of the most, she has never been farther than Boston. She's 40 years old, never been any farther than about 20 miles from her home. That's, that's not real far. And she was petrified of seasickness because everybody she heard or knew who had ever been on one of those voyages for five weeks was usually very seasick and she you know that's very unsettling she's worried about that and she also had to make all the arrangements for the voyage now i have to tell you these are freight ships they are cargo ships this is not the queen mary and you have to bring everything they had a cook they had a cook on board there was a ship's cook However, you have to bring your own food. And so she had to bring all her own food and and uh, grain and meat, and she brought chickens for their eggs. And then when you got a little closer to where you were going, maybe you'd kill a chicken for dinner. Uh, she brought the cow. Now, I don't know if it was the same cow, but probably not. But she brought a cow, and, and she had to bring their food uh all their own entertainment uh meaning uh chess games or card games or books or sewing or whatever you were going to do because you didn't have a lot of stuff they would you know they didn't have shuffleboard you know they didn't have any of these things uh it was a very very harrowing experience she did get seasick she brought nabby she went with nabby and she had a married couple she had hired a married couple to go with her uh, because she felt that the uh, the ambassador, you know, the the minister, plenipotentiary, as they called them then, uh, they should have a, a, a house and and a uh, and help appropriate to his position. She did not know that he was already living in a mansion with several servants already. <laughs> but she brought them along, and I believe they stayed with her for the rest of, uh, for, for years. Uh, they they became part of the uh, household. So that's how she got over. And it took a long time. So what was her impression of Europe? Um, it, it was an evolution. It was an evolution. Um, Abigail, like I said, she was 40 years old. When you're 40 years old, uh, you're pretty, you're getting set in your ways a lot. And she had never been that far from, from home at all. Uh, she had never met people who were essentially different than she was. Uh, she was a Puritan, and uh, New England is much more Puritan than licentious France or something. 
And, uh, and on top of it, uh, she didn't speak the language. She, they went over on the ship, uh, and they, they had a French book, a French grammar book, and they were all trying to teach themselves how to speak French. But I don't know if you speak French or not. I had some, it was a long, long time ago, but I did have some, and unless you have somebody to teach you how to pronounce, you're not going to get very far. So when she got there, she could read it, you know, so-so, she could read some French here and there, but she couldn't understand anybody. Nobody could understand her. Uh, the good thing was John Quincy Adams had become a superb linguist. He had a real gift for it, and he would wind up speaking about six languages. Uh, but uh, he would be their interpreter because John wasn't very good at languages either. Very, very convenient to to have the child who can actually speak it. <laughs> as she as she um, spent more and more time there, um, her attitudes were changing, and things that she thought were shocking at first because they they weren't the way she was used to, or they didn't think the way she you know that she had thought or they were a lot more liberal than she was in her attitudes. Um, she got to understand how really lovely it was, and uh, she did change a lot. She became far more cosmopolitan. In some ways, she became more tolerant, uh, and uh, she she developed a, a, a much broader outlook on life and things and 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 politics and politics well and and that seems like the the perfect segue so i think our listeners probably know that after the adamses return from europe um first john becomes the vice president but then he becomes the president eight years later so how how did abigail feel about her husband being elected as president well, this is a real quickie, a real quick answer for you. A sense of awe and duty. They were Puritans. It was, they were, you know, I, I use the word awesome and I don't use it like the kids today use awesome for everything. She, it's awesome in almost like the biblical sense of it. This is a tremendous responsibility and honor and I will perform my duty. And and that's exactly how they felt, but very strongly. This wasn't like, let's have a party. Well, and and you really get the sense of that from um, some of John's letters back to her, because, you know, she wasn't there for the inauguration. But as as he's getting ready to be inaugurated, and then right after, he just has this real sense of, oh, my gosh, this is real. Am I really ready for this? Mm Mm-hmm. Awe and duty, that was the sense of it. And I, on John's part, possibly a little resentment-ish because he he had very, very big shoes to follow. Absolutely. You know, he was following George Washington. You really, if you could pick somebody to follow, you wouldn't want to follow him. You know, this Absolutely. is sort of like, how am I going to do this? So uh, it was it was a it was a rough go. He didn't have uh, George Washington's 
monumental reputation. Um, who he he was not elected unanimously like Washington was. There there was a lot there was a lot of going on for him. And hers, well, like you said, she wasn't at the inaugural. Uh, John's mother was elderly and she was in failing health. I think she died a couple of weeks later. And and so Abigail was back taking care of her mother-in-law. Abigail was back, uh, did not spend a lot of time with John during um, his administration. She was back and forth taking care of the house and the family and the kids and the grandchildren. And she wasn't all that well, so she didn't. She didn't have that much um, input and to do, and she did what she needed to do. I don't think that Abigail made her mark as First Lady nearly as much as um, as she did as John's wife. If John had never been president, and he had just been a signer of the Declaration of Independence or, or something of that nature, something. Just their letters, their exchanges and everything else, she would have still been somebody that we would know about. I really think so. And and that's interesting. That kind of gets to my next question, um, since we kind of talked about this with uh, Martha Washington, just kind of getting a sense of what, Abigail's day-to-day duties at the president's house when she was there would have been and how those differed from her responsibilities in Quincy. Um, Most of the uh, political people knew Abigail. I mean, she was there for eight years on and off and on and off and on and off. Uh, and she got to meet everybody. And so she knew them. They knew her. Uh, she had to, I don't want to say sit on her tongue a lot. That's a very mixed metaphor, I think. But uh, she she had to watch herself. John had to watch himself. Both of them were outspoken people. And it was much easier for them to speak their minds and say what they had to say than it was to let us see how I can say this the most diplomatically. He wasn't such a good diplomat. She wasn't such a good diplomat. They had to learn, and it was not an easy lesson, and I don't know if they ever learned it completely, but they did try. But as far as her duties, um, she had to manage the household, and we're talking really in Philadelphia because they didn't spend, she she was not in uh, the White House very long, neither was he. It was only at the very end of uh, his administration, but uh, Abigail had to manage the house, and she had to manage the entertainment, but she didn't have to polish the silver. She didn't have to make the beds. They did have um, servants. They did have staff there to do the menial day-to-day. Now, I know, you know, now, the big story, of course, in, in the White House is that she was hanging up her clothes in the, in the, the laundry, but I don't think that she really um, had to do all that much, uh, do the housework. The difference between Abigail's handling stuff and Martha Washington's handling stuff is Martha never had to do it. Never. Martha always had plenty of servants and plenty of people to do all those things for her. She was a, probably a much 
easier manager than than Abigail was. Uh, Abigail may have had to um, worry about it a little bit more. She was not as natural to it. I think she was more natural to the business end of, of their house and, and all those things. But because uh, she did, when she would go back to uh, Massachusetts, she would usually buy supplies and have them delivered down to Philadelphia because it was so much cheaper up in New England. Uh, so she did manage the um, the business uh, of them as president and Mrs. Uh, Adams, that end of it. And uh, she was John's confidant. That was throughout their lives. She was his confidant. He could speak to her. She understood what he was talking about. It was not one of these, oh, don't worry your pretty little head over this. This is a man's business, and what do you know, or don't worry about it. Uh Uh-uh. He would talk to her, and he knew she understood what he was talking about, and they could have good discussions. It was good. Well, and speaking of that, and especially considering you had mentioned her interest in politics, what role, if any, did she play in administration policy, and did her contemporaries find her to be more of a political figure than her predecessor, Martha Washington? Um, was it was it seen that she was different in that role than Martha? They, uh, her, her contemporaries had known, or at least most of them had known. Of, if not personally, they have known about Abigail Adams since uh, 1775 uh, through John's letter. He he spoke of her a lot. He sometimes shared pieces of her letters, and uh, so the, the contemporaries of Adams, the people who knew him, knew that their uh, that he had an exceptional wife. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had gotten to know her very well when they were in Paris, and they were good friends. Uh, and um, he thought very, very highly of her. She was not his kind of woman, but he thought very, very highly of her. And most people thought that um, Mr. Adams had a very intelligent wife and very capable and intelligent wife. If she had any politicking to do, uh, it was for John's years alone for the most part, although I believe she did write a couple of letters to the editor of a couple of the newspapers under an assumed name. But they, oh, everybody used assumed names at the time. Everybody Absolutely. did. Absolutely. Yeah. At that point, I it wish they would do unusual. that now. Yes. <laughs> There are some days that it it would be very nice if they would do that. (laughs) Yes, I think there are some days that they would do that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and by the time that John had assumed office, um, even their youngest child was in his mid-20s. So did the Adams' children or grandchildren play any role in the life at uh, at the president's mansion? Um, Well, let's see. John Quincy Adams... And his brother, Tom, were both in Europe. Uh, John Quincy Adams had some political uh, um, diplomatic posts. He had been appointed by uh, George Washington. And George Washington specifically 
told Adams face to face, don't recall him. He's really good. Let him be. I mean, he's a really good guy. We, we, we keep him. Uh, and so uh, John Quincy stayed over in Europe, and his brother Tom, who by that time was about 25, 26, somewhere in that age range, uh, went over there as his secretary. So the two of them were in Europe. Nabby, their daughter, had married yet another William Smith. Uh, there are a lot of William Smiths in that family, and, and they confuse everybody. But this particular William Smith, it was not the best marriage in the world, um, certainly not financially. They had about four kids, but this William Smith was um, he was a speculator. And he was very apt to um, try to get in on these get-rich-quick get kind of schemes, most of which failed. So Nabby was not doing very well, uh, and Abigail felt obliged to take a couple of her children back to uh, Massachusetts with her and and have them we'll take let the kids stay with us there'll be less mouths for you to feed and have to worry about and don't worry about it so she she had taken them um and charles as you probably know and you may in previous uh, uh podcast charles was a mess charles was a total mess um he he had become an attorney I don't know how good an attorney he was, and I don't even know if he liked being attorney. John Quincy Adams didn't, uh, but he was a very good one. But Charles, um, when John Quincy went off to Europe to take on these diplomatic posts, he had uh, life savings of, a, I guess, a, what today might have been you know, several thousands of dollars that he had saved. And he asked his brother Charles, as one might do, listen, I want to leave you in charge of this money. And I want you to, you know, just keep it safe for me. But if there's a good investment, if there's some way, you know, that we can, you know, a good business move or something like that, I will trust your judgment and you can invest it for me. Well, um, Charles listened to his get-rich-quick uh, brother-in-law, uh, and he invested his brother's money, a life savings, and it was a substantial amount. Lost it all. Lost it all. And I think that probably just triggered poor Charles into a, 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 a corkscrew of, of decline. Uh, he, he began drinking. Uh, alcoholism ran in, in Abigail's side of the family. And he he really just, he was a mess. He was a mess. And he eventually died uh, when they were, uh, when, when John was still president. It was very sad. Very sad. So her children did not play uh, that much of a role. She had a nephew who became uh, John's uh, secretary. He was another strange bird a little bit. Uh, but he, he was very, said that he was pretty good at it. Uh, and she did have grandchildren that she had staying with her. Um, I don't 
No, I don't think they stayed in Philadelphia. I think she had them in in uh, Massachusetts. Uh but they were they were small. They were little kids. They they were not, you know, grown like you could be helpful. Uh they they were, you know, under 10 little kids. Well, and given what you know about her, what do you think were Abigail's feelings about the role of first lady as we think of it? I think I think getting back to that awe and responsibility. I think she felt that she needed to be her persona, her public image, probably more than she liked. Uh, I think some parts of it she may have enjoyed to a degree, and uh, I think that uh, there was a lot of annoyance there. The same is with John. It was a lot of work, a lot of unappreciated work. And uh, a lot lot of annoyance, but I think mostly her persona took hold, and she kind of behaved and did what she believed was expected of her and expected of the way she's supposed to behave and do. Absolutely. And and like so many presidents and first ladies, um, even though they seem to get extra criticism for it. They, it seemed like they really enjoyed that time going back to Quincy, getting back to kind of... Their, oh, they loved going back. Life. They loved going back home. They loved going back to to Quincy and, and being able to put on their old clothes or, or to go outside. John always liked being out on the property and, and doing those kind of things. And, and yes, they did. It was their home. That was their vacation. Go home. Yes. And and that gets us to kind of the end of the presidency, um, the election of 1800, which, as some of our listeners may already know, was one of the more highly contentious elections in American history. It was. How do you think Abigail felt about her husband losing that election and their departure from public life? Well, I think there was some conflict. They're, they're very conflicted. On the one hand, John was about 65. She was getting close to 60. Her health was always on the iffy department. And so there, there, there is a conflict of, oh, it will be nice to go home and be in our own place, just like the Washingtons, their own vine and fig tree and, and everything. So that part was kind of nice. But I always thought that she felt a lot like Lou Hoover, you know, that very resentful that John was not given the respect he deserved and that um, he had worked so hard and he tried so hard to do what he believed was the best thing, which probably was the best thing, but he was kind of all alone in doing it because he had not only had uh, backlash or, or um, criticism from opposing parties he had it from within his own party he didn't have a lot of really really strong partisans who really thought the most of him and and we're backing him all the way here we go no 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 and i think that she was probably very resentful for him for him absolutely and i know that 
um, I'm actually reading Joseph Ellis's book on John Adams right now, and he talks a great deal about how Adams struggled in the first 10 years or so after leaving the presidency, you know, trying to kind of make sense of all of it. And even though he at times tried to avoid criticizing Jefferson, he would still sometimes fall into that, you know, he's just angry. Yes, there was a lot of bitterness, a lot of bitterness. Uh, and, and a lot of conflicted bitterness because it wasn't just bitter over point A. It was uh, point A and B and D and, well, not so much C anymore, but you know, G and H are really, you know. There, there was a lot of it, and he was very, very resentful in many, many ways, and it was hard for him. But he did mellow. He did mellow. Absolutely. Well, and... And and one of the reasons why I was so excited to start the Adams series is that it, it really is such a time of change and transition for the government. You know, we have the first peaceful transition of power. We have um, we have all this. Oh, well, that was an important. That was so important. Absolutely. And we have, you know, we're trying to make a name for ourselves on the international stage. Um, right now, I'm working through the XYZ affair and being able to say, no, we're not going to pay a bribe just to talk to somebody. That's right. And then one of the key, another big pivotal moment in the nation's history happened towards the end of his presidency, the move to D.C., yeah. So even though even though it was for a very short tenure, the Adamses were the first to live in what we now know of as the White House. So Yes it was. So what role, if any, did Abigail play in that move to Washington DC? Um well he went first. He was there about a month or so before she came. And uh, she didn't know what to expect. And when she got there, she didn't like what she saw. <laughs> she really didn't. Uh, but again. Many, many people for a while. Uh, she probably is very glad that they weren't going to be there for that much longer because uh, it was bare. It was cold. Um, she probably had to do more physical housekeeping and all. Not that she couldn't. She was raised to do that as a New England housewife. She did it for years. Uh, she probably had to do more if she wanted to go out. They, you know, they didn't even have banisters down the stairs, and you could only go out this particular entrance because that was the only entrance that had stairs. And um, it, it was it was very inconvenient physically and and certainly not a comfortable stay but they did entertain they did have people over they did what they needed to do and have to do um i i don't think that she was you know really crazy about being in the white house because it was so stark and bare and 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 uh, unfurnished they had to bring their own furniture and and it's amazing, you know, for so long, and, and we have this conception of Washington, D.C. in the modern era, um, but for so long, it was this rugged, 
there really wasn't much to do kind of backwater that so many people came to. It was backwater and physically (laughs) and physically harsh uh, in in its um, there was mud all over the place. There were pigs running in the street. Um, you couldn't get from here to there. Uh, there were nails. There were boards. There was uh, walking walking on this board across this, you know, ravine of God knows what underneath it. Um, it was hard. It was hard. Definitely. So uh, I, I'm imagining that she was she was glad to put that behind her at the very least. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. Feather, what would you say was Abigail's greatest contribution to the role of First Lady as we understand it today? I don't think that her contribution to the role of First Lady was nearly as much as a Martha Washington, who was the first, and therefore she kind of set the tone for it, Uh, but and certainly nothing like the contribution that Dolly made who would follow her. Uh, Dolly was really good. Dolly was really, really good. Uh, and she contributed an awful lot. Abigail's role was uh, understated, and it was very much still, I, I still hold with, as John's wife as his confidant. Um, She was intelligent. Everybody knew she was intelligent. Nobody ever thought she was anything other than a very smart, good, good, you know, um, with it, uh, intellectually uh, gifted woman. They all thought so, but she had very little opportunity to, uh, what, what should I say, toot her horn or blow her stuff, you know, uh, uh, she had to do the entertaining and uh, the, the, um, the the decorative touch of the, I don't even want to say of the White House because I don't mean it that she was going to be in, say, paint the walls blue or something, but the decorative meaning the social role. Um, Dolly was much, much better at it than she was. I think probably Martha may have been better at it than, than um, Abigail was. But as a absolute confidant and sounding board for her husband, I think very few come up to that par. I think she's well, a benchmark and, and, in that department. Absolutely. And, and it's like you said before, you know, even had John not been president, had she not been in this role, I think she still would have been a notable figure in history. I think. Yes, she would. I, I believe she would. Mm-hmm. And even though she's one of the most, you know, recognizable first ladies, you know, when when you ask people nameless first ladies, she's one of the first that's named off. But yep. it's more oh, everybody her. likes her. Everybody, everybody considers her. Oh, yes, I love you know. I talk to lots of women, uh, and and they say, oh yes, I'm a great admirer of Abigail Adams, as as they should be. Um, and, we and can all have of, our favorites for different things, but she she's a bright lady. She's a bright absolutely. bright lady. 
and and I think it's more for her her force of personality than necessarily you know contributing to that role of first lady. Mm-hmm. And so. For our final question, what's the one fact about Abigail Adams's life or personality that you would most like our listeners to take away from this episode? Well, she was, number one, she was outspoken and she was intelligent. But the one thing I think is overriding, and if you read any of their letters or any of their letters that mention her and all, Abigail never outspoke on about anything unless she knew what she was talking about. This is a wonderful thing. This is a great gift. You know, instead of, you know, she didn't just run off at the mouth or, or just sort of, back, you know, back into a corner or, well, I think, you know, or anything. She, she had something to say, and she was going to say it. It was probably worth listening to, something I admire a lot. Absolutely. And... Speaking of um, having somebody who has much to say that is wonderful to listen to, you are a gem and a treasure. And so thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all all the insight that you provided to us about Abigail and really helping us to understand better this amazing personality in American history. Oh, Jerry, thank you very much. I enjoy doing it. I really do. As her husband's presidency drew to a close, Abigail left Washington, D.C. before John, leaving in mid-February 1801. As noted by Withy, quote, Abigail adjusted to retirement much more quickly than her husband. She enjoyed her public role and yet regretted the time spent away from Quincy and her family. Now, at last, there would be no more agonizing decisions about whether to go with John or stay home. No more painful separations. She had always enjoyed her role as wife, mother, and household manager. Now, she threw herself into that role with renewed energy. She would also be on hand to greet their returning son, John Quincy, and would finally get to meet her daughter-in-law, Louisa, and the grandchild that had been born while John Quincy had been stationed in Europe. The meeting would not be completely smooth, however. The first night that Louisa spent at the Adamses' home, Peacefield, Abigail's niece, Louisa Smith, who was living with the Adamses at the time, grew jealous of Louisa Adams and, quote, left the dinner table crying and refused to eat. Louisa Adams worried that her in-laws felt that she was a quote-unquote fine lady who would never fit in with the rest of the family. Indeed, a tension would remain between the two. And while I don't get the impression that they ever had a falling out, they found themselves at cross-purposes from time to time. Abigail, meanwhile, was hounding her other son, Thomas, about moving back to Quincy from Philadelphia. Thomas finally had enough and wrote to Abigail urging her to stop with the unsolicited advice as he was a grown man making his own way in the world. In 1803, John Quincy, having decided to move to Quincy to be closer to his parents, joined Abigail in urging Thomas to do the same. And finally, Thomas gave in. By 1805, Abigail was able to enjoy having John Quincy's family as well as Thomas and his new bride Nancy nearby. 
It seems that Abigail took more of a liking to Nancy than she did Louisa, as Nancy came from a more familiar background, having been born and raised in Haverhill, north of Boston. Even better, that August, Nabby and her children came to visit. And with he notes that, quote, surrounded by her children and grandchildren, Abigail felt happier than she had for many years. She was as busy as she had ever been, supervising the servants, tending her garden, running the family dairy, fussing over John and the children. The happiness would not last, however. Nabby's husband, William Smith, who at this point was serving as surveyor of the Port of New York, got involved in the plots of Francisco de Miranda, who we just talked about in the latest episode. And William and Nabby's son, William Jr., sailed with Miranda and his expedition to Columbia in 1806. Long story short, Miranda's expedition failed, and William Sr. was arrested in the U.S. for his role in the plot and fired from his federal post, while William Jr.'s fate was not known for some time. One can imagine the anguish faced by all the family, and Abigail worried over her daughter and their family. Slowly but surely, good news started coming in. William Jr. had managed to avoid capture and had made his way to safety on the island of Aruba. Back in New York, William Sr. was acquitted in his trial. Though the family had avoided the worst, Abigail still had reason to be concerned about Nabby and her family. But despite her pleading, she could not convince the Smiths to move to Quincy to be closer to them. Meanwhile, as we will learn more about over time, John Quincy did the unthinkable. He joined Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. Abigail wrote to him in disbelief when she read the news in February 1808, and John Quincy responded that it was true and explained the various reasons why he had joined with the faction that had so opposed his father eight years prior. Even worse, the next year, John Quincy was appointed as U.S. Minister to Russia by the new president, James Madison, and Abigail could not bear to go to see them off when they set sail from Boston. She wrote that saying goodbye to John Quincy this time, quote, was like taking our last leave of him. With the notes of her later years that Abigail's, quote, health was generally poor, although she was rarely too sick to be up and about, supervising her household and writing her letters. She reduced somewhat her efforts to dominate her children and grandchildren. She became more moderate in her political views and less hostile to political opinions different from her own and she patched up quarrels with old friends. June 1810 saw Thomas and his growing family moving out of Peacefield into their own home after having lived there for five years. 1811, though, would bring much more terrible losses to Abigail. In March, Abigail learned that Abby was suffering from symptoms of illness, and she urged her to come to Boston to seek medical advice. At first, Nabby put off her mother's concerns, but finally at the end of June, she headed to Quincy. Nabby's condition worsened, and the doctors diagnosed her with breast cancer and recommended surgery. Now, this recommendation came reluctantly, as this was a time without antiseptic methods or anesthetic, so surgery was very painful and very risky. Nabby agreed to the procedure. Afterwards, she started to recover, but she was not well enough to travel, so she agreed to remain in Quincy under her mother's care for the winter. However, it was around the time of the surgery that Abigail received word that her sister, Mary Cranch, who had been ill since July, had died two days after her husband, Richard. The loss of these two, who John and Abigail had been close to for so many years, hit the Adamses hard. Though Nabby recovered and was able to return home in 1812, It would only be a couple of years until she started falling ill once more, 
and in June 1814, Nabby's children reported to their grandmother that Nabby had a tumor in her other breast and was very weak. Despite her weakness, Nabby decided to make the trip to Quincy in late July so that she could be with her parents. Nabby died at Peacefield on August 15. The death of Nabby was a heavy blow for Abigail, but she found some solace from the presence of Nabby's daughter Caroline, who lived at Peacefield until her marriage in 1816. Abigail and John suffered from occasional illnesses, but would recover and go back to their daily routines. They were often visited by relatives, friends, and at times strangers, who they, quote, would drop everything to entertain. They weren't always homebodies, though, and in particular, letters from the summer of 1816 are filled with descriptions of various parties they attended, with John writing to John Quincy, quote, Bless my heart, how many feet have your mother and your father in the grave? And yet how frolicsome we are. Despite her fears that their last parting would be final, Abigail was on hand to greet John Quincy, Louisa, and their children upon their return from Europe in August 1817. John Quincy had been named by the incoming President Monroe as his Secretary of State, and after visiting for a few weeks, he and Louisa would make their way from Massachusetts to Washington. Over the next year, Abigail would find herself occupied with keeping an eye on John Quincy and Louisa's sons, who had been enrolled in school in the Boston area, and writing to Louisa with advice on her hosting responsibilities as the wife of the Secretary of State. Sadly, Abigail would not live to see her son ascend even higher than that post, for in the early fall of 1818, she contracted typhoid fever. During her illness, quote, John was so distracted with worry that he paced the house, unable even to read. Finally, on October 28th, Abigail Smith Adams, the preacher's daughter turned president's wife, passed away. Though she spent her life devoted to supporting her family, and in particular, her dearest friend, her husband John, and likely would have spurned any spotlight on her as an individual, Abigail is arguably in the present day more respected and admired than her husband. In a time when the roles for women were very limited, Abigail was able to navigate in the public sphere and see to her household. We see in her a balance between a knowledge of child-rearing and politics, of sewing and satire, of the domestic and the public spheres. She may not have made much of an impact on the role of First Lady, but her role as a woman in late 18th and early 19th century America provides an example of a woman who worked throughout her life to define her own role, rather than accepting without question the one which she was given by society. Special thanks again to Feather Schwartz Foster for joining us and providing her insight, and to Shelley, Faye, Karen, and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. I'm available through multiple modes of communication if you have any questions or comments about this episode. You can always send me an email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. If you'd like to find out more about Feather's work, I'll post links on social media, or you can find links on the source notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.